Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's all-star panel, returning to the roundup is the familiar, the fabulous, the fan favorite, Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought-after crisis communications expert and a prolific political analyst at MSNBC. It's great to see you again, Susan. Great to be with you. Thanks, Ron. Also returning, the man who still eats numbers for breakfast, our good friend, Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, and my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, welcome back. Great to be here. On this week's Roundup, the Pfizer vaccine receives full approval from the FDA, ushering in new mandates and new pushback, while New York's new governor, Kathy Hochul, unveils an attempt to obfuscate the severity of the pandemic by her disgraced predecessor. The House passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act on a party-line vote, setting up yet another showdown in the Senate over the filibuster and our democracy. Donald Trump is out of office, but still on stage. We will discuss his most recent rally and the ominous turn these events seem to be taking. We'll find out what stories Susan and Mike are watching. And finally, in our Politicology Plus segment, we'll talk about what the debacle over filling Alex Trebek's place as Jeopardy host can show us about how we scrutinize public figures. You can become part of this growing community at politicology.com slash plus. Let's dig in. On Monday, regulators gave full approval to Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, the first of the new vaccines to move beyond emergency authorization. Immediately, a cascade of vaccine mandates followed, including from the Pentagon, a number of public and private universities, and blue chip corporations. This opens the door for not just additional mandates, but Pfizer is now able to put its own marketing and advertising muscle behind their double inoculation and hopefully putting to rest some of the confusion over vaccines in the Delta variant. A new CDC report out Tuesday shows that the unvaccinated are 29 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 and five times more likely to be infected. So the bottom line is the vaccines work, they are safe, and you should get one to protect yourself, your family, your community. So, Mike, we're moving into this new phase from asking people to get the vaccine to making it exceptionally difficult not to get one, or in some cases outright mandating it. And you've mentioned before that the path forward here was shame and ostracization, really, for the anti-vaxxers. And so there's been a lot of speculation, uh, a lot of a lot of punditry around how people who were hesitant to get vaccinated because of this emergency use authorization wasn't full authorization. And I don't think it surprises me at all that we're just about to see. I mean, I think we're about to see a new wave of rationalizations for not getting it. And actually, that was just a that was just a convenient excuse. But how are you reading this? I think that's exactly right. This was a ruse from the beginning. And when this excuse falls apart, then they're going to find another excuse, which gets back to my earlier, you know, pronouncements about making this about ostracization and socially isolating this own sort of virus, this social virus where people were refusing to, to be involved in, in public health. They're refusing to be involved in protecting themselves, their families and their neighbors. Look, this is a this is a disturbing trend, and it's not going to go away. This is not something that can be ameliorated by education and informing people. These are people who are consciously choosing an alternative set of facts in one case or choosing not to see basic plain evidence in another. 
and it's got to be treated as such because it affects the health and livelihoods um, of all of us, of everybody in society. And that's just part of being part of a modern civilization is, is recognizing that you cannot just work in isolation. You cannot just establish your own freedom under your own rubric and do whatever the hell you want to do. It's not the way this works. And so, yes, we are about to see another round of excuses that will come up, probably less flimsy than the last. We will probably also start to see attacks on the FDA um, that will re, you know, roll out into a broader cascading effect of, of undermining confidence in that institution. And we're going to have to probably be living with this virus, maybe in perpetuity, with um, a different set of regular vaccine schedules for those of us that choose to be vaccinated or antivirals to mitigate the effects of it. Susan, Pfizer unveiled a new name for their vaccine, uh, Comirnaty, I think is how you say it. Um, We tend to lament the billions of dollars spent on advertising drugs to Americans. But in this case, how do you think Pfizer being allowed to advertise their vaccine uh, might help them do what the CDC and other institutions have failed at, which is essentially, you know, convincing skeptics to take it? I actually think it's going to boomerang against them besides having a really weird name that no one can really pronounce and has been um, <laughs> not just me, <laughs> not just you, but um, many late host, late night uh, hosts have gone off on. I think the fact that they will now be able to advertise to Mike's point is a perfect excuse as to why people will say they're not going to take it because this is just another way someone's trying to make money off of them. I don't think their ad campaign will do nearly as much as having professionals in the FDA and doctors out there saying it. They can make it look slick. They can make it look good. And maybe it gets them to, for for those who are going to be vaccinated, say, yes, get me that Pfizer vaccination versus Moderna or J&J. It may help them in their market share, but I don't believe it will increase people's desire or willingness to get vaccinated. And that's a big problem because they've already gone after Fauci and others saying this is like people are getting rich off of it. They will now go to the drug companies. And that's what this, that's the danger of this. The the approval is the average, the fact that they can advertise, which is of concern to me. Yeah. And I, so, so there's one rationalization, right? That, that they don't trust the drug companies now who are pushing it. And then another one, which, you know, Mike alluded to that we're about to see, I think is people are now saying, oh, it was rushed. The approval was rushed because they don't trust the Biden administration or really any excuse to delegitimize anything that the administration does. So, so the, the approval itself is now being called into question in terms of, you know, whether or not it, it is, it is legitimate. Um, so a num- just yeah. Ron, on that point, I yeah. just like to say this is part of the ongoing problem the CDC has had yeah. since virtually day one in communicating with the public. Uh, they have not been clear in their messaging. At the same time, they want to promote it, saying this is such a super fantastic vaccine and it happened so quickly is the same reason people are using yeah. not to take it. And then yeah. again, you're right on the FDA approval. The messaging has not been there. They need to say all right, we hired five times the amount of doctors to review the research because that's what the FDA approval is about. It's about consuming the data. It's not in the development stages. So why it takes a long time is you normally don't have the staff to analyze that much data. It takes a long time. They need to do a much better job communicating as to where the steps were increased by whether human resources or existing science 
to show this was not re- this was not rushed, but rather it was putting so much human efforts behind it to get it analyzed and get it to the public. And that's yeah. where they're really missing the point. And that's going to be a big job for Pfizer. I hope that they will do that in their advertising. A number of our you know, least favorite Republican governors signed executive orders preventing public institutions and in some cases private as well from mandating vaccines. But in most instances, these bans might have only covered vaccines under emergency use authorization, meaning with Pfizer gaining full approval now, these governors are about to show how committed they are right to preventing vaccine mandates, despite everything we know about their safety and efficacy. So, you know, first out of the gate was Governor Greg Abbott, who on Wednesday doubled down and issued a new order banning mandates for COVID-19 vaccines of any kind. Mike, what do you expect the rest of Abbott's cohorts to do? Do you think they'll follow suit? And, you know, are, are we just going to see the same sort of repositioning from them that we expect to see from other vaccine skeptics? Yeah. I mean, look, Abbott basically signed this legislation from quarantine because he's, he got COVID-19, right? Yeah. And so he's now, it is it is mind boggling to think about how this is all playing out when you've got Florida that is basically exploding with COVID. You've got some of the largest corporations that do business in the state basically um, defying the governor's orders in the, in the name of Disney specifically. Yeah. And you've got... Um, you know, schools that are becoming the new battlefield for this thing uh, in, in all of these states. And these governors are doubling down on this concept and idea of medical freedom, even though all these governors and all of their staff have all been vaccinated and are keep saying, well, I vaccinated. Donald Trump himself is saying, I'm vaccinated, get the vaccine. But the base itself has become so rabid that it's, it's, it's defying, uh, you know, basic, basic science, uh, all in the name of this quote unquote medical freedom, which is a political posture. Right. Yeah. That's all this is. And this disconnect is, it's disheartening. And we've been saying that for years now as we see more and more of this play out. But to literally watch a governor who's contracted COVID-19 then sign this type of legislation refusing to, to allow the mandating of a, a clearly scientifically proven safe vaccine is beyond the pale. Yeah. Ron, Let's, can I just drag us down into do. the gutter of politics Let's do it. <laughs> for a minute? Us? Because, Us? I, mean, <laughs> oh, I miss you both. <laughs> because, you know, we're talking about the importance of the vaccination, about public policy, health policy. But I can't help but think of late watching these Republican governors and bring it down to the gutter of politics by thinking, why are they watching their own constituents die? I mean, the people who are not taking this vaccine are the most avid primary vote, likely primary voters there are. They are the ones dying from this. You look at Florida. They are at 23,000 new cases yesterday, the highest since January. And there was no vaccine in January. So, I mean, to me, it's mind-boggling that not only is this god-awful public policy, but eventually it's bad politics if you're killing off your supporters. Mm-hmm. And that is literally what we're going to see happen. And I think the, 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 the only thing that can potentially change their mind, politi- and it will be for politics, as they see more and more parents getting upset that their children are going to school they are not, it's not like COVID last year where they were, the children were more immune to it. 
They are getting it in droves Mm -hmm. and that parents are going to be very upset when their children come home sick. Yeah. And again, not from a caring public policy, public health perspective, but from a voting perspective, I think that's going to hit DeSantis and Abbott and a few others right between the eyes. You would think so, but it also seems like something they should be very, you know, sort of constantly aware of, but they don't seem to manifest any concern over this. Not yet. Okay, so let's pivot for a minute to New York, Susan, where this week your new governor, Kathy Hochul, acknowledged nearly 12,000 more COVID-19 deaths in the state uh, than had been previously publicized by the Cuomo administration. According to the AP, the previous figures excluded people who died at home in hospice care in state prisons uh, or at state-run homes for people living with disabilities. Um, as well as people who likely died of COVID-19 but never got a positive test. And as we know, in the early days, it was very difficult to get a positive test. And during those early days, there were hundreds of New Yorkers dying every single day. So former New York Congressman Steve Israel just uh, recently wrote a terrific op-ed in The Hill uh, entitled, Do Not Underestimate Kathy Hochul. So how exactly, you just wrote recently on NBC Think about this, and we discussed it on a Tapped episode. How should we expect Kathy Hochul to move New York's COVID-19 response forward from the previous governor's administration? I think the first thing will be on transparency. Now, while it was very, you know, important that the governor Hochul recognize these discrepancies of 12,000 cases, which has been an ongoing battle, as you mentioned, Cuomo was pushing back against the numbers that the CDC was reporting. It was also very smart to set the record straight now. So she, in essence, starts the the clock at her numbers and gets those 12,000 instead of having to wait for a review and have them put on the books under her watch, they kind of get put under Cuomo's watch. So politically, that was good, which is in part why Steve Israel said, don't underestimate Kathy Hochul. The other thing she will do is assemble a very good team, I believe, and that she's working, willing to work with municipalities, especially New York City. She said something very interesting. She said, I want my best and brightest to work with New York City's best and brightest, which is how you come up with better solutions and meeting the needs of a city of nearly 9 million people, um, as well as the rest of the state, that collaborative effort. So I think she'll manage the, the, the crisis as, as well as possible in its current place. There is something to be said for the way Governor Cuomo knew how to pull all the levers of government at the local, state, and federal level. For example, he was able to get the hospitals in New York State to all network together, which never happened. And that was, you know, we hear about his bullying, which I have talked about. Um, That was a direct response to him using a really heavy hand, but it was also very effective. So, Depend If we can stay where we are, I think she can manage the crisis very well. If it starts spinning out, and especially, again, as schools start this fall, this September, that's going to be the bigger question is what happens when things spiral out? Will she be able to know how to marshal the resources? On Tuesday, the House of Representatives passed the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act along party lines, 219 to 212. The bill would reinstate preclearance, 
require public notice of any significant changes to voting laws and provide a method for citizens to challenge laws that infringe on minority voting rights in court. So notably, this was the first time in the 56-year history of the Voting Rights Act that not a single Republican voted in favor of its expansion or its renewal, which essentially puts an end to what once upon a time was a celebrated act of bipartisanship, one of the very you know few occurrences of that. Now, for background for our listeners, the Supreme Court effectively gutted several of the Voting Rights Act's provisions in 2013's Shelby County versus Holder decision. Most importantly, the the burden that that act placed on the states uh, to prove that any changes related to election laws were not discriminatory, and that applied to every state that had a history of racial discrimination. So for more on this Shelby County uh, Voting Rights Act preclearance, I highly recommend you listen to two of our episodes with David Becker, uh, who's an elections expert. Um, The second installment of our Drawing Democracy series from March 31st and Democracy and Triage from July 7th. And we'll link to both of those in the show notes if you want to go deeper there. So it's important to note that this bill is significantly different from H.R. 1, also known as the For the People Act which would create a national system for voter registration and establish federal standards for things like absentee ballots and early voting. Uh, It would require states to use independent commissions and redistricting and other major reforms. But H.R. 1 already passed the House, but it was dead on arrival to the Senate, which we've discussed. It didn't even have 50 votes, uh, didn't even have 50 Democrats supporting it. You know, famously Senator Manchin, you know, saying he wouldn't vote for it. But in the same op-ed that Manchin endorsed the John Lewis Act, Uh, and voiced opposition to the For the People Act, he also said he wouldn't vote to do away with the filibuster. Along with Kirsten Sinema, there's no reason to assume their position on filibuster reform has changed. So, Mike, like, it's really hard to be optimistic here about this getting passage in the Senate. Even though this is a very narrow bill, um, it historically has been supported by Republicans. Um, Those days seem to be just over. Uh, what would have to happen for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to pass in the Senate? Well, it's not going to happen. I, I, you know, at a certain point, you just have to recognize the reality. Look, I'm also not going to suggest that there isn't still room in my heart for uh, it's to be broken when you see Republicans not willing to support the Voting Rights Act, which again has not just been uh, uh, emblematic of our ability to come together as two parties, but really as our 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 ability to come together as a people to protect the sanctity of democracy and the basic, most basic element of practicing democracy, which is voting. There were a lot of Republican champions of the Voting Rights Act bill and Voting Rights Act legislation. It's a big part of our history. And the fact that that is gone, I think, is is a testament to just how far down the road that we have come. So look, what this is ultimately coming down to is the need or the political reality, the political need for Republicans to limit the franchise as much as they possibly can and not step on the toes of their brethren um, at the state legislative level that are imposing a lot of these restrictions on voting. That's why the likelihood of passage is virtually nil. Like you mentioned, the the, the John Lewis bill is basically about preclearance. It's more of a process bill. It's not even necessarily aspirational. It's simply clearing the way to make sure that there aren't obstructions at the state level. Uh, we can't even get there now uh, without any – we can't get a single Republican vote mustered up to vote for that type of legislation. So to answer the question specifically, I just don't see how we possibly get past – Uh, that filibuster, because there's no Republicans that are going to budge. So I've mentioned this before, 
Um, I'm, I'm interested to know what, how both of you think about this. And I mentioned this before with, with Zach Tchaikovsky and, and Lene Erickson uh, on an episode, and I think with Lucy Caldwell too. I can't think of a better reason for Democrats to uh, break the filibuster rule than getting something like this done. And so it seems to me like the only the only way forward here, if they're going to get this done, is to get Manchin on board somehow, some way, with basically removing the filibuster for this very narrow purpose. And I don't know if they have the political will to do that. Susan, how are you thinking about the filibuster specifically as it relates to getting this bill done? Well, I would support getting rid of the filibuster to to get this done. I don't think it will happen because under no circumstances will Joe Manchin support getting rid of the filibuster, so he has said. But what's really important to recognize as we're talking about the passage of the John Lewis Act in this house, in this Congress, this was nothing more than a reintroduction of H.R. 4. We commonly say H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. The difference was, is H.R. 1 was reintroduced and passed in this congressional session. H.R. 4, the John Lewis Act, was from the previous session. So it had yet to even be exist for for consideration until yesterday. So basically, this was like, okay, we're just going to redo this bill again. So nothing was changed from where most people thought we were a week ago. This is the same piece of legislation. The House made no effort to modify it. They were throwing it back to the Senate, as is, to see what Joe Manchin will do. Now, I think it would have to be stripped down even to get Joe Manchin maybe to consider the filibuster. would have to be further stripped down, probably just to the preclearance level that you guys were just discussing. That to me is the is the heart and the only thing that matters about that legislation in the immediate. Because once things can become legislation, the fight is so much different. It's the same thing as we've talked about redistricting and a host of other things. Yeah. To take these to make these lawsuits and then get them settled, we could be looking at 2028. Yeah. So that's why this legislation on preclearance is is if they could strip it down to that, it's the only thing I, I see hope for, frankly. Okay, so uh, just to follow up on that, assuming assuming you know Joe Manchin doesn't have a change of heart on the filibuster, is there anything? Uh, I haven't. I, I wonder if you've seen anything from Republicans because I haven't uh, about what would have to change in the bill in order for them to support it any any kind of signal that you know maybe if we if we if we nipped here and tucked there we could actually get behind this or we could peel off a couple of republican votes i haven't seen any kind of proactive suggestions from republicans and it seems to me like their only um rationale here is basically to argue that racially motivated discrimination in voting doesn't exist anymore which was the purpose of the vra but there was one thing. Joe Manchin, remember, I mean, it seems like, I guess we have to count months as dog years or something like this, because it seems like it was 18 years ago. Yeah. But Joe Manchin did say, this is something I would consider. And he put forward a lot of different ideas. If you remember, Stacey Abrams got behind it. There was there was a lot of give and take. There was voter ID included. But at the same time, it took a lot. It allowed for preclearance. So we saw, I think, about five, four or five Republicans sign on to that concept. 
to get to 60? Yeah. I just don't see it. Yeah. Okay. Well, more broadly then for both of you, I'm not sure the question here is presumably if you, if you, you know, communicated the level of crisis about our democracy, you could get public opinion to a point where it would, you know, you could exert enough pressure on Congress to do something, to get something passed. But I don't think the question is any longer, how do we better communicate the level of crisis in our democracy? Um, because at this point, both sides believe they are fighting for the survival of democracy. And that is, you know, a terrifying reality we're going to discuss in the next uh, segment uh, about Trump. But Mike, how do you think about that? When when it is no longer about, um, you, you used to have this bipartisan agreement on protecting voting rights, for example. When both sides now, and this is not a both sides equivalency that I'm creating. What I'm saying is both sides believe that they are fighting for the survival of American democracy. Where does that then leave us with protecting the system that allows us to make decisions together? I think you set up the question perfectly. It leaves us in a very bad space because we can't even agree on what democracy is anymore. I mean, think about that, how yeah. profound that is. If you can't agree on what the boundaries of democracy are, then how can you work to preserve, to protect, and fight and save it? Basically, what you have is one party that doesn't really care. This is my obviously my own opinion here, but doesn't care about what the, the traditional understanding of democracy is or was. The Republican Party has become absolutely convinced that what it needs to do is protect and preserve its own leadership. And if its leaders are in power, then it's democracy. And if they're not that it's something else. That's what we're dealing with. And that's why you're not seeing any support across the aisle to work on this legislation. Like you said, it's not that they're not putting up any votes, although they have postured, as Susan pointed out. There, there's no suggestions as to how to make the bill better to get their votes, right? Those discussions aren't even happening. That's problematic. That's problematic because it tells you not just the legislation suffering in and of itself because it's so important, but the fact that we're not even talking about how we can get um, to a win here for both sides or have some sort of a bipartisan measure because we no longer believe or democracy is no longer a bipartisan concept. It's, it's literally um, the province of which party you believe in as to what the American style of democracy is. Yeah, that's really well put, Mike. And, you know, we should be clear, since we've brought up um, reconciliation before on the podcast, we should. it's probably worth making a note here for listeners to understand why, you know, Democrats can get something like a, a massive infrastructure and spending bill through Congress through this process called reconciliation. Um, but that process is only accessible for legislation that specifically has to do with the budget. And it, it is it is uh, sort of uh, a bridge too far to try to claim something like voting rights um, and protecting democracy is a budget-related piece of legislation. So that's why this ultimately comes down to the filibuster. And I don't know if it's useful to, to talk about this, but it's come up again on the show, uh, come up before on the show, especially with, um, you know, uh, great Democrats that we've had on. Uh, and it, it just seems obvious that, like, well, it seems like Democrats are afraid to control, to take control and govern after they've won elections the way Republicans always do. And I wonder if you think that's true. And if so, how can they overcome that? And, you know, there is the, there is the familiar refrain of, of the democratic party is a, is a more loosely uh, held together coalition of interests while the Republican party is, is much more cohesive and loyalty oriented. Um, 
But, you know, I think when it comes down to this, it is probably not worth wasting political capital when you don't have 50 votes on your own side. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack in that one, Ron. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, for, that when you talk about the governance styles, the difference is, is Mitch McConnell, if he believed whatever he wanted to get through the Senate was that important and was such an important, quote, principle, and I use that word lightly with Republicans, um, he would keep going. He wouldn't look, can I win or can I lose? He considers it a win if he keeps going and tries to, for it doesn't matter if it takes a decade, they will keep battling that fight and keeping it foremost and say, we would have gotten it through if not for a few. Whereas Democrats are more concerned about looking like they lost. They don't know how to, you know, McConnell was very masterful in making his loss look like a win. Mm. But I think it's also important when we're talking about this issue is we're, we're, politically, we're using really bad terms. Um, I think the, Dem- the Democrats are. Okay. We're talking about saving our democracy. And trust me, I, I, am, I believe it is in danger. I believe the core foundation of our, of, our, of our country is in danger of when it comes to fighting for our democracy. However... It's not a battle that you can see. What we, I think the conversation really needs to start turning towards in this conversation is, why don't you want that person to vote? You are stopping these people from voting. And it allows a visual. It shows long lines. It's because most Americans who are not going to be focused in the way we are in a laser on this issue are thinking, like, we have a democracy. Like, we do. There's... I know we're fighting for it and all that, but like actually it works, especially when at the same time we're struggling so hard to say you can believe in the integrity of our elections, which is also a message that's going through. So I think it's got to be you can believe in the integrity of our election system, but we are also trying to prevent people from banning others from voting Mm -hmm. just like they were in this 50s, 60s and, and way before then. But the conversation has to change because most Americans are like, really, that seems a bit much. We have a democracy. We're not mm. losing it. Mm. Versus zeroing in and saying to especially swing states and swing districts, this person does not allow your neighbor to vote. Yeah. And that's the difference as far as Democrats needing a strong message to make it personal and having their people saying, why don't you want your constituents on blank street to vote? Why is their line 10, 10 times longer? Why don't they have a drop box where this one does? And to actually show how disproportionately people of color and of Democrats are, are kept from voting. It's almost as if democracy the fight to preserve democracy, and I put that in quotations, right, in air quotes, is now a proxy for other things like cultural warfare. Absolutely. Which is exactly what we're going to talk about next. So last Saturday night, thousands of Donald Trump supporters gathered in a farm about halfway between Birmingham and Huntsville, Alabama, to hear from the former president and a slew of Alabama Republicans. A clip of the rally made the rounds in which the former president, um, excuse me, that's the disgraced, twice impeached, loser by over 7 million votes former president, actually 
actually encouraged his supporters to get a COVID-19 vaccine, and he immediately got hit by a wave of boos from his own crowd, which caught him off guard visibly. And it's been played up a lot in the media, but I actually want to focus on the rest of the rally and why I think these rallies are more dangerous now than when he was actually president. They are different now. And just to be clear, that's why we're talking about this uh, now. We haven't really done a lot of Trump-oriented conversation, mostly because he's not the president anymore. But I think we've taken our eye off of this for a little bit too long, and I think it's important to, to, to key back in here. So there are key moments from the speech which stood out to me, like, They want to get rid of our history. I'm sort of quoting here from him. They want to get rid of our history, our culture, um, Washington, Lincoln. If our elections are taken away, we're not going to have a country anymore. This is a sick culture. Our country is a disaster, and it's going to die before your very eyes. Our nation is being destroyed from within. But before we begin this discussion, uh, I want to play uh, the last few minutes of Trump's remarks, um, and and then we'll and then we'll talk about this. So, in conclusion, our movement is up against some of the most sinister forces and entrenched interests that anyone can even imagine. But no matter how big our way of life, no matter how big our country or how powerful they may seem. You must never forget this nation does not belong to them. This nation belongs to you. Our ancestors crushed fascism. Beneath the weight of American tanks, they toppled communism by the strength of American culture. And now we will defeat woke radicalism and a continuation of communism because that's what this is heading for. We will defeat it with the sheer power of American pride and American brain. Our leaders may not believe in the destiny of America. They might not. They may not believe in the destiny of America. I really don't believe in many ways they love our country. But we do, and we are not going to let anybody take that love away. We know that there is no mountain we cannot climb. There is no summit we cannot reach. And there is no challenge we cannot meet. People run for president, and they come in second, third, or fourth in one primary, and they're national heroes all of a sudden. We, not me, we ran for president, and we won 32 states, and then we did better the second time, much better the second time. Much, much better. Somebody from the fake news media said, sir, what was the difference between 2016 and 2020? I said, well, the difference was that in 2020, we did much, much better. The rallies were bigger. The enthusiasm was more because In 2016, I told you what we were going to do, but it was talk. In 2020, you knew that I did it. So we had a much better, but we were cheated. And it was rigged, we were cheated. But there's never been a movement like this. And you know, it's funny, I say it a lot. And with the fake news, look at all of them back there. The fake news is back there. They never, ever question it. 
If I say something that's close to wrong, it's headline news. But I say this is the greatest rally in the history of our country. This is the greatest movement in the history of our country. There's never been anything like it. And it's probably the greatest movement in the history of our world. It's probably this movement, call it Make America Great Again, call it America First, call it what you will. I believe it's the greatest movement probably in the history of the world. And it's just starting. It's just starting. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. So with love of our nation swelling in our hearts, and it does swell in your hearts, that's why you're standing here in the rain. And I say these words to you, and you've heard these words before, in some cases, many times before. We will make America powerful again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America, despite what you're seeing today, so sad and so pathetic, we will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And you know what it is. We will make America great again. Thank you, Alabama. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. So thank you for listening to that whole clip. I know it was long. There's a couple of things that I want to note about this, and then I can't wait to hear your thoughts about this. First, um, it's important to know there were about 30,000 people there in attendance. I mean, the Republican Party said there was 50,000. I think reportedly 30,000 is probably more accurate. That is a massive, massive number. It was raining. Your left, I watched this entire speech um, just to prepare for today. I sat through the whole hour and 20 minutes of it. Um, and throughout the, the entire thing, you're left waiting for a call to action. And just observing this as a practitioner, it is almost like a powder keg and you're waiting to be told what to do. Because normally after a speech like this, at the end of the speech, you would be told, so, you know, the world's going to hell, but you can fix it by voting for me. Right. But if elections don't, if, if elections are fraudulent, then voting doesn't matter. And so that's all that, that is the undertone of the entire thing. So what's the CTA? We don't have one. There's also the rhetorical rhythm, which is repeatedly drawing a line in the sand between us and them. The us are the descendants of America. Somehow the them are not. And that repeatedly drawing a line in the sand over and over and over again. If you listen to this whole thing, eventually you're, you're digging a trench that is going to become a chasm between you and the other. And by the way, this entire thing before Donald Trump took the stage began with a clip from the movie Patton, which everyone remembers, which, which primes the audience to be with, with wartime uh, uh, imagery and emotion. And I think this is much different than the rallies that we observed last year. And 
Mike, I, I want to turn it over to you first and I'd just share what you're thinking about this. Well, I agree with you. This sounded a little bit different in tone than what we've um, heard in the past. Um, it may be just different hues and different shades, but but it is turning here. Um, there is some of the same jingoistic, you know, commentary and talking about making America great again and strong again and proud again. But you are right. This has turned very internal in a way that sounded just fundamentally different. One of the things that really struck me about the speech was his expansion, not of just the big lie, but to the specific states that he's going into now and saying the elections were stolen in Nevada. They were stolen in Pennsylvania. They were stolen in Wisconsin. And what he's doing is he's conscripting an army. He's conscripting an army state by state by delegitimizing races all over the country now and delegitimizing the elections, not just in Georgia or Arizona. He's delegitimizing them everywhere. And it is, there is uh, this clarion call to arms that is just very disturbing. Um, there's a blood and soil elements to who we are. And if you agree with us, then America is your heritage. It's your legacy. And if not, then you're not American. And it sounds like rather than where in the 2016 cycle he was blaming Mexicans and Muslims and external foes, he's now saying the enemy is within. The enemy is within the gates. And we need to start taking up arms in a very visceral, very militaristic way against one another. Um, very deeply troubling. So, Susan, you and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, and you made a great point, which is that Donald Trump as the as the person is is less the story here than the people. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I I think at this point one thing Donald Trump is very good at is picking up on anger, but I think Donald Trump needs the people at these rallies more than the people at these rallies need Donald Trump. They will keep moving forward. They already have that message of of not message, they have that belief of hate and that these are really rallies, oh, it's okay to hate at. And it reminds me when I when I saw that of what we saw in our history books about Klan rallies, not people in sheets wearing, you know, covering their faces, but at family picnics. These This is now a socialized setting for gathering together. I don't, I think these people are already connected online. I don't think they need Donald Trump to to share their opinions. I don't think he's leading them anywhere, except that as the former president, even a former president, does add legitimacy to what their needs are. So now you have someone who is saying, it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to hate. And I think the difference between the rallies last year and this year was last year, Donald Trump wanted their vote. This year, Donald Trump wants them to fight for him because he loved what he saw on January 6th. That he's afraid to do it for a whole host of reasons. But you ask what the call is. I think there is a call there. The call is more actions like January 6th. It's more fight against the government physically. It's about taking back the state house or the Capitol physically with violence. That is his call. That's what he's trying to stir up. Um, it's to, to play on their needs. Now, his needs are different. His needs are, I need 
that I, I need to be in front of the public. I need to be loved. But most of all, I need your dollars. <laughs> Let's not forget, there was over a million dollars raised in Alabama on that night. Um, there were people who literally decided it was better to be in that rally and, 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 and yell and anger in the rain and give their money to this then just be home and responsible. Never mind that, that, that Alabama has the lowest vaccination rate in the country at 36% and in seeing a 200% increase in COVID cases. They are they they believe in their being, which t- that it is, it is that this hate is being validated. So I think there can be a lot of other people to fill that void if Donald Trump was quiet as of tomorrow. I think the bigger thing that I am more concerned about then Donald Trump's speech was the fact that these people are connected the way they are and the threat of domestic terror that they present this country. It is big. We are starting to hear more about what happened on January 6th. The Secret Service was giving out a lot of information to the D.C. police that was collecting from states all around the country. And it was getting funneled through. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough of a a collection of intelligence to take action. But we're hearing an influx of this, and that's what really scares me. Yeah, Susan, I think to your point, that viral moment uh, of Trump getting booed by his people just around vaccines, I think is evidence of what you're talking about because he's he's not leading them. He's just the louding. He's, he's the loudest voice, and. And it's almost like, you know, he's got to stay in front of them. And it's like, you've created a monster you can't control. He's trying to control them. But, um, and and, like, I don't want to focus too much on crowd size, you know, for obvious historical reasons, but, but there is something to be said for the fact that 30,000 people showed up to a political event in the very first year of a four-year presidential cycle, which really should be the calmest part of a political cycle. And um, Mike, I can't remember ever seeing anything like that equivalent. Um, I don't know if if you do or how what you make of that, but to me, it signals it signals enormous intensity. Um, and and it it just it makes me feel like you know Trump is just like the surfer on a tsunami here. Well, this unfortunately may be the calmest part of the election cycle too. This first year, this may be just the beginnings of what we're going to see over the next few years. I do think it is remarkable. Um, I agree with you. Look, having thirty thousand people standing in the rain somewhere south or the middle of nowhere in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, there's no other American politician that could draw 30,000 people at this point in time anywhere, let alone there. Um, this is very serious. This is some, this is a social phenomenon. And I think, um, look, I, I do, I, I understand what Susan's saying. I think I agree with what, what she is saying is, is this is about the followers now. This has grown into something. It was catalyzed by the 2016 campaign. It's now metastasized into something that, even he can't control. He just has a need to get out front of it and corral it and give it a purpose. But it's seeking community. It's seeking its own people. It's seeking its own identity, and it's growing. And it's something that I don't think we can we can politically anyway um, marginalize or, or 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 discount anymore. I don't know whether you know Donald Trump himself becomes a nominee in twenty twenty four. I think it's his if he wants it clearly. 
But I do believe that he's going to continue this type of practice and fomenting and giving this, giving this life or giving it form rather. It's taken on a life of its own. I mean, it feels like we are in, I think we are in new uncharted territory uh, just in general in our politics. Um, and this isn't forward looking there. The, the most important piece of this is the fact that there is no campaign. There is no campaign right now. It is it, the, 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 the gathering is just unfiltered anger. Um, it, Mike, this is a theme that you keep touching on that, you know, that we're in this period of a couple of decades that could get really ugly. And uh, here, the, the fact that there is no campaign is, is, is one thing that makes me question how much media attention, scrutiny, events like this ought to be receiving. And, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about the Biden administration, uh, their, their achievements, their failures, uh, COVID-19. We've been talking a lot about the stuff that, you know, the, the actual governing that's been getting done. And I wonder what you think about how much attention ought to be drawn to this undercurrent of, uh, of, of hate, of intensity, the, the, you know, the, 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 the people, the threat that you identified, Susan, how do you, how do you think about whether and how this ought to be covered more or differently than it is? Well, I think, you know, you raise a very good point. There is no campaign, which is what makes this all the more dangerous, which is why I am so scared about domestic terrorism, because without a campaign, there is no one to lead. And this allows networks of people to go take it on their own and outdo each other. That's what scares me as far as a nation. And that's where I think if you start pulling back the curtain, we could see perhaps more media attention on those stories. Because I understand the need not to want to cover the president or the need to cover the president. But what this represents is is really frightening. And while it's not a campaign of political nature, it is a movement of hate. And, and, And again, not political movement, but actually a movement of hate that is going to continue to network itself. And that is really scary to me. And I mean, the, the easiest way to look at it is look what happened to uh, Michigan uh, Governor Whitmer. There was that, you know, the, the people were arrested and just sentenced for their plot to kidnap and kill her. And this was very real. So it can, those, we can see a lot more of those things. And what scares me is we can also see it more locally now. I'm not just talking about a governor we could be looking at an election worker. We can be looking at a council member who don't have these security details that governors have. But the, the way it can play at such a local level is, is really frightening. And this is ruled by mob because it makes me concerned for other people in those communities where those people live that attended that rally. If they don't think like them, what happens to them? So... Mike, this uh, this reminds me of earlier in our conversation when we were talking about both sides believing that they're fighting for the survival of American democracy. And I think it's important to point out we had an election. The system worked in 2020. 
despite all of the the trauma it was put through, despite all of you know Donald Trump's attempts, uh, the people uh, who voted for him lost. But the people who lost did not change their minds. The majority of them don't even believe that they lost, which only serves to inflame them. And so I wonder what that means our work is. Well, like Donald Trump said at the at the rally, he said, I'm not the one attacking American democracy. I'm the one who's protecting and saving American democracy, right? Yeah. That's his own definition of it. And, and part of this is understanding that this is really about identity. It's about a loss of identity. In many ways, this is about the mythology of, of the lost cause again. So it's the South rising again. And I don't mean that necessarily because this was in the South or because this is particular to the South. It's just a concept of having lost. The idea of Trump and Trumpism, right, and what this social phenomenon really is, is about people who have a perceived loss of status. They have lost something. They've lost this country. They've lost their economic fortunes. They've lost the optimism of the future. And that's where the hate that Susan's talking about so accurately starts to seep in. And what this has given it is community. So how do you combat that? The first is I don't think that you can ignore it. I don't think that you should ignore it. I think that the media needs to cover it, not because it's a campaign, but because it is a social phenomenon. It is real. It is not going anywhere. If 30,000 people showed up for a rally in the rain outside of Huntsville, Alabama for another speaker with the same topic and the same speech line, that would be newsworthy. It's worthy of coverage because it is something that is happening socially that we need to pay attention to. And it's not just particular to one region or one demo- demographic in this country. It's happening and it's widespread. And it does really shake the foundations of democracy, at least democracy as we have known it. So look, the first thing I'm going to say is very basic, which is it's going to take vigilance. This is going to be um, what I've been saying is probably going to be a 20-year struggle for whether or not we can preserve and protect this American experiment from domestic threats. And it's happening because of this demographic bubble. There's a reason why these people feel this sense of loss. There is the economic anxiety. There is this incredible wealth gap. There are people who are feeling left behind because of technological change. That is not new in American history. It's not new in world history. It has happened before. It's happening again now. And it creates for very disruptive times. But when you add the extraordinary demographic change on top of that, well, now you've got a powder keg. So when you have this extraordinary economic transformation, an extraordinary demographic transformation, and people are feeling not just the loss of their economic security, but the loss of their ethnic and racial identity, and then you put a politician in front of them saying, we've lost America, and America can be ours, it is our birthright, it is our heritage, it is our legacy, if you simply follow me and follow, you know, I alone can fix it, well, you've got a textbook example of rising authoritarianism. And the definition of democracy doesn't matter. The definition of most of these terms that we have debated and discussed during most of our adult lives simply doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because if you've lost everything else, everything else has failed you. And that's what it is. That's what this, this sense of community is all about. That's what this, this social movement, this social phenomenon is all about. And it's going to take, uh, I will say this, I do believe in an America that is much more diverse, that is much younger, is emerging to take place 
uh, of of this this lost America. These, these people that are feeling the sense of of having lost this country. The question is, can it replace it? Can it take over the reins of government? Can it take over the leadership and our civic responsibility and our civic life before it is torn down domestically by these people who are feeling that America has left them? That is the question for this country over the course of the next 20 years. <sighs> Mike, I can't imagine it being said any better than that. And that is precisely what the fight is that we're in. That's, that's, the, that's the fight that we're in. That is the fight of this generation yeah. beyond that. We've always looked to, you know, fighting Nazi Nazis in Germany, fighting, you know, in Vietnam uh, with a containment theory against communism. Those were legitimate, valid battles for the preserv- preservation and protection of American-style democracy. This is uniquely and foundationally different. Not for 150 years have we had a domestic threat, but it is it is the call of this generation to fight this uh, in a myriad of different ways to protect and preserve the American experiment. That the, this fight is no less than that. You know, I, thank you both for sitting through that clip with me because it is not easy to listen to, and it's it's really really un- unpleasant. Um, but I really think it's important that we that we pay attention to this and that we scrutinize it. And politicology listeners. Um, thank you for hanging through this because I know it has been, uh, it's been nice to have a break from Trump. Like, frankly, it's been good for my mental health to, to, to tune out. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way, but I think because of how, how Mike just put this, we cannot look away. We cannot look away. Now that we're up to speed on three of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching. Susan, do you want to take it away? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go back to, to COVID a bit because I am watching what happens next week when the Chicago school system opens, the following week when New York City school systems open, and what happens as far as kids being able to stay safe and or does the the Delta variant explode in those cities? Because I think that is a game changing moment for where we are as a country. You know, it's interesting because we talk about like who gets vaccinated, who doesn't. And one of the things I think that will change vaccination rates, it won't happen for six months or, or a year, but will be school districts requiring that all children, once approved for those 12 and under, be vaccinated. And that will help at least get more of our population, overall population vaccinated. But the challenges for these mayors and for even the smaller school districts is going to be phenomenal in the next two weeks. And I think we really have to watch it because it's not in the Northeast yet. It's not in a lot of big cities, but I I fear that it will be. Good point. Mike, what do you got? Well, just prior to this taping, we got news that the uh, second explosion was heard outside of Kabul airport and that there are American casualties involved. Um, I think this changes the entire narrative of what's happening in Afghanistan at this moment. Now, um, we don't know a lot of the specifics, but what I will say is that the narrative of this story has changed already twice in the past 72 hours, and it looks like it's about to change again. This could become a debacle. Uh, this could become something that just really redefines American foreign policy. 
uh, not just for the Biden administration, but probably for the foreseeable future. So I'm watching it obviously very closely and hoping, of course, that we don't have a, a loss of life. Yeah, it looks like the Associated Press is reporting at least 40 dead and 120 wounded mm. as of right now. Yeah. Um, I just – I have something lighthearted to mention. It is not a true sort of look-ahead story here, but because of all of the doom in this episode, um, I just want to mention the incredible – Wonderful, spectacular movie, uh, The Princess Bride, which I don't know if you if you if you guys have seen it. I mean, yeah. this is one of the best movies of all time, I think. Um, and uh, and I mention it because Mandy Patinkin, who a lot of people know from Homeland, back when this movie, he played Inigo Montoya in this movie. And if you know the movie, you know Inigo Montoya. You know, uh, you killed my father, prepared to die. He and his wife, um, Catherine Grody, are my favorite thing on social media right now. And if you aren't following them, you should go find them because they are just, if, if there ever were an example of somebody like doing something really good and useful with social media and using a platform to, to build people up and, um, and, and make the world a better place, it is, they are the first people who come to mind and I just think they're wonderful and you should give them a follow. Um, and most recently, um, Mandy and his wife answered this TikTok video of a woman who had just, just recently lost her father. Um, and, uh, and there's this, there's this rumor, uh, that during the taping of, of the princess bride during that scene where, uh, uh, Inigo Montoya says to the six fingered man, uh, you know, the six fingered man is offering him all kinds of gold and riches. And what do you want? And he says, I want my father back. You son of a bitch. And the rumor is that Manny Patinkin was thinking about having lost his own father during this scene, which is iconic. And she wanted to know if it were true. And it was, it's this very emotional response and you should go find it. It's on Twitter and, uh, and Instagram and, uh, we, we can link to it in the show notes. But if you want, if you want something to make you feel good, um, go follow them. They're great. That's what I got. I love it. Love it. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and effort that goes into every Politicology episode. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think more like a political strategist, to look further down the road than everybody else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's Plus segment and much more at politicology.com slash plus. You can share this episode or one of your favorites with friends, family, or colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there because this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.